starting in verse 1. After this I looked, and behold, the door standing open in heaven, and the first voice which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take, what must take place after this. At once I was in the Spirit, and behold, the throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne. And he who sat there had the appearance of jasper and carnelian, and around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. Around the throne were twenty-four thrones, and seated on the thrones were twenty-four elders clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads." From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder. And before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. And around the throne, on each side of the throne, are four living creatures full of eyes in front and behind. The first living creature like a lion, the second living creature like an ox, the third living creature with the face of a man, and the fourth living creature like an eagle in flight. And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within. And day and night they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne saying, worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things and by your will they existed and were created. Let's pray. Lord, this is your word. And God, we worship you through it as we read it together. God, we, we discover your majesty, your power, your splendor. Lord, this is about you, not about us. Lord, I pray that as we continue to dive into your word, you would reveal to us who you truly are through your scripture. Lord, help us to have a proper perspective of your holiness, of how you are eternal, how you are powerful. Lord, help us to draw near to you and know that as we do, you will draw near to us. Lord, we commit this time that we have to you, and it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You can all have a seat. So last week, a little bit of a recap. Um, remember, we're out of the, the letters to the, to the seven churches, and John is taken up into the throne room of heaven. And remember, uh, he is invited, he's commanded, not a suggestion, but a command to come up into heaven, ultimately, by Jesus. Uh, and at once, it says that John was in the Spirit. This wasn't anything goofy or anything hocus-pocus, like the Holy Spirit brought him to a place where John had the curtains peeled back as if it were. Uh, it's for him to see what was in and what is in heaven, uh, remember, John has his gaze fixed upon the throne. Nothing else but the throne. And the way he tries to describe the throne uh, is like this, which, was, which what we read. Uh, the appearance of jasper and carnelian and around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. Uh, John is fixated upon 
the one on the throne. Not the throne itself, but the one who is seated on the throne. I don't know if you noticed this in verse 3, but it says, And he who sat there. None other than than God himself, John is saying he's the one that had the appearance. And in all of his glory and all of his splendor and majesty, this is the best I can do to explain what I saw. Jasper and carnelian and a rainbow. and, And then he goes on to talk about the 24 thrones which seated on the throne, uh, 24 thrones were, were elders clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads and that's where we pick up this morning but in verse 4 we're introduced to this other group uh, so we were introduced to the one who is seated on the throne which is God himself but then we're introduced to these 24 thrones which John says on the 24 thrones were 24 elders now let's understand one thing God has no need of seeking anyone for advice or wisdom, okay? So listen, let's understand one thing, that these 24 elders are not his counsel, are not his advisors. It's not like he's going up to these guys and saying, what do you think? He's not that way. God knows all. He sees all. He hears all. They are not a heavenly committee where God gets advice and direction from. You see, God has no need of seeking counsel from anyone because he's all-knowing. He knows everything from beginning to the end. For God to seek wisdom would mean that he's lacking in something. But but listen, God lacks in nothing. God is wisdom. God is uh, counsel. And God isn't turning to these men to ask for advice. Listen to Job chapter 38, uh, 4 through 24. If you have... uh, Quick fingers, turn to Job. If not, it'll be up there. Uh, Job chapter 38, 4 through 24. Uh, Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. God speaking to Job. A bunch of rhetorical questions here. Or who stretched the line upon it? Or on what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone? When the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy. Or who shut in the sea with doors when it burst out from the womb. When I made clouds its garment and thick darkness darkness its swaddling band. And prescribed limits for it and set bars and doors. And said thus far you shall come and no farther. And here shall your proud waves be stayed. Have you commanded the morning since your days began? And cause the dawn to know its place, that it might take hold of the skirts of the earth and the wicked be shaken out of it? It is changed like clay under the seal, and its features stand out like a garment. From the wicked their light is withheld, and their uplifted arm is broken. Have you entered into the springs of the sea, or walked in the recesses of the deep? Have the gates of death been revealed to you, or have you seen the gates of deep darkness? Have you comprehended the expanse of the earth? Declare If you know all this, where is the way to the dwelling of the light? And where is the place of darkness that you may take it to its territory and that you may discern the path to its home? You know, for you were born then and the number of your days is great. Have you entered the storehouses of the snow or have you seen the storehouses of the hail, which I have reserved for the time of trouble for the day of battle and war? What is the way to the place where the light is distributed? Or where the east wind is scattered upon the earth? Who has cleft a channel 
for the torrents of rain and a way for the thunderbolt to bring rain on a land where no man is, on the desert in which there is no man, to satisfy the waste and desolate land and to make the ground sprout with grass. Has the rain a father? Or who has begotten the drops of dew? From whose womb did the ice come forth? And who has given birth to the frost of heaven? The waters become like hard stone and the face of the deep is frozen. Can you bind the chains of Philitis, or it's a crazy dinosaur, or loose the cords of Orion? Can you lead forth the Maseroth in their season, or can you guide the bear with its children? Do you know the ordinance of, ordinances of heaven? Can you establish their rule on earth? Can you lift up your voice to the clouds that a flood of waters may cover you? Can you send forth lightnings that they may go and say to you, here we are? I read way past 24, didn't I? <laughs> it's just that good. Listen, I can imagine this. Job is trying to respond, but he has no way of responding because it's like, I didn't do any of that. I didn't set the foundation. I didn't lay the cornerstone. I didn't tell this bear to go with its children. Only you. And, and, and listen, God has no need of asking humanity or angels their advice on what he should do. God knows exactly what to do. It's us humanity, you and I, that need to ask God what he wants us to do. The most fascinating thing about that, though, is the fact that even before we ask, like Scripture says, God already knows. God already knows what he's called us to do and what, he, what we need even before we ask him for the thing that we need. So here's the question. Who are the 24 elders on the throne? Uh, well, the thrones are the lesser thrones. This isn't God's throne. This is the lesser thrones. They are not the main throne that John was describing. John just so happens to see these 24 other thrones around him. And listen, as I was studying for this, there is much debate on who these elders are. Some believe them to be Ian, Cliff, Craig. Just kidding. They don't believe that. Some believe them to be the 12 Old Testament patriarchs and the 12 New Testament apostles uh, representing the entire redeemed of God. Uh, they, they suggest this because of Revelation 21, 12 and 14. On the gates, the names of the 12 tribes of the sons of Israel were inscribed. And on the wall of the city had 12 foundations. And on them were the 12 names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. Others believe that these were the great saints of the Old Testament to be distinguished from the New Testament saints. Others believe that they were representatives of the New Testament church wearing victory crowns and fulfilling the promise of Revelation 3.21. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. Others believe that this could be God's angelic council of holy ones leading worship before the throne of God. Just picture 24 eons around the throne of God. They believe that it's, it's a special human priesthood chosen from among the redeemed to worship before the throne in rotation, as you'll see in the Old Testament priestly orders. But I don't think John was too concerned with who these guys were. I think he was more so fixated upon the one who was seated on the throne. I don't think John really was like, man, I've I got to figure out who these guys are so the, the people who read it in the future can know for sure. I think what John really wanted all of us to understand is that the one who is seated on the throne is God, and that's where our attention should be. Because guess where the 24 elders' attention was? 
upon the one throne. It was around the one throne. Now, although he's not clear on who these elders were, there are a lot of speculation on who it could be, but we have to remember where the Bible is silent, we must not speculate on what it is. John, remember, like I mentioned, is not fixated upon these 24 elders. Although in the rest of Revelation, we'll see the importance of these elders. The bottom line is this, is that God is on the main throne. Now, when we get to heaven, I highly doubt the first thing we're going to do when we step into eternity with God is, I highly doubt we're going to be looking around and we'll be like, oh, who's that guy? Who's, who's that over there? He's really big. I remember the story in the Bible. He pushed the pillars and it killed all the Philistines. Who's that? Oh, that's Samson. We're not going to care who's really there when we first step into eternity. Our eyes will be fixated on the fact that we're finally, we're finally face-to-face with our Creator, with our Savior, with God. And as believers, I think sometimes we can get so caught up in, in the who's who of the church. Listen, the church is supposed to be an example to the outside world of, of heaven. We don't come here to worship ourselves come here to worship God, but how many times within the church have we got hung up on the who's who of church? Uh, In transparency, I guess, or in in honesty, full disclosure, however you want to call it, when I was feeling a tug to go into full-time ministry, one of the things that I would uh, constantly put on my resume was Harvest Christian Fellowship with Greg Laurie. Don't get me wrong, I loved being on staff there. It was just, it was an awesome time of, of really training for what God would have for me in the future. But one of the dangers I got hung up uh, in early in my walk with Christ was uh, that I focused on the pastor or the ministry leader more than I did on Jesus. And there's a danger for us as a church to do that. We can look at the man rather than the one who created the man. We can look at the person who's leading a ministry rather than focusing on Christ and Christ alone. And as I started applying for uh, ministry positions outside of Harvest, I would emphasize how I was on staff with this guy, thinking that was like the seller, you know, like, oh, that's going to get me in. Oh, was I wrong? Listen, Pastor Greg does a great job at pointing people to Christ and still does, but he will be the first to admit this, that it's not about him. It's about Christ. And if you're, listen, if you're finding yourself sitting under the leadership of a man who makes ministry all about himself, you need to find a different church. Or pray that God would convict this leader. Whether it be a pastor or an elder or a deacon or some type of ministry leader, listen, the emphasis should not be upon a man, it should be upon Christ. Like I had mentioned, the bride of Christ is called to be an example of heaven, yet how many times have we worshipped the pastor rather than the one who is seated on the throne? I think we can all agree to this. Man, humanity, will disappoint us all at some time in our life. Have you ever been disappointed by a human being before? Yeah. Uh, Because they're flawed. The elders on their, the thrones, their, their purpose is to worship the one who is on the throne. It wasn't to draw attention to themselves. 
And obviously John couldn't help but observe these elders. Uh, but the elders, if you notice, were not worshiping each other. They weren't like on a rotation of worshiping like the highest elder or the, the middle. They were worshiping the one true God. They were worshiping the one who would, they, would, they will declare is worthy who, to receive glory and honor and power. Revelation 4.10, it says, The 24 elders fall down before him. Notice that. Not each other. Before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the thrones. Why? Because God is worthy of their worship. See, sometimes our, our minds take us to, well, I don't know what my purpose is on, is on this, this earth. I, I can clearly sum it up for you. Your purpose and my purpose on earth is to know God. It's to worship Him with your life as a living sacrifice. But take it one step further. Your purpose and my purpose is to make God known. These elders were not making themselves known. We don't even know the names of these elders. Their purpose was to point people to a holy, righteous, and loving God. In verse 5 through 6, John, John says this. He says, From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder. And before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. Now, uh, the seven spirits of God. Okay, let, let me just preface this with something. There's only one Holy Spirit. Not a bunch of other spirits running around and all that. T- it's one Holy Spirit who is co-equal with the Father and the Son. Okay, uh, That'll be another uh, sermon for another time on the Trinity and even on the Holy Spirit. But the seven spirits of God. Some people get hung up right here uh, because of that word Spirits. They think it's all of a sudden now some spooky type of instance that's happening in heaven. It is not. Okay, This is a phrase that is used in Revelation, as we've already seen, to refer to the fullness of the Holy, Holy Spirit. So, seven, right? Seven, if you're familiar with Scripture, uh, you'll remember that seven represents completion or perfection, right? Uh, now, God rested on the what day? the seventh day, right? Because he was complete. He, he didn't rest because he was burnt out. He didn't rest because he was tired. He rested because it was complete. So what does the seven spirits represent? Mind you, in Revelation chapter 1-4, we've already seen it. It says, grace to you and peace from him who was and who is to come and from the seven spirits who are before his throne. Uh, let me take you to what Scripture tells of the Holy Spirit, what John refers to as the seven spirits, the fullness of the Holy Spirit. Uh, you have to draw from the entire Bible to understand the completion or the fullness of the Holy Spirit. Now, many of us will understand that the Holy Spirit is our comforter, He's our teacher, He's our, he's our guide. We get that. Jesus has laid it out for us in John 14, but, but we have to look to the Old Testament we have to look to, to how the Holy Spirit was moving even in the Old Testament. In Isaiah eleven two, it says, And the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. Listen to this. The Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, the Spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. I, Isaiah, in this passage, introduces us to the Holy Spirit as the ultimate source of wisdom, the ultimate source of understanding and counsel and might and knowledge and reverence. 
He is saying that's who the Holy Spirit is. Zechariah 4, 6. Then he said to me, this is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel. Not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. Zechariah introduces us to the Holy Spirit's power. He says the only way that you can accomplish what you're going to, to see, Zechariah, is not with your own strength, but it's by the power of the Holy Spirit. And in Revelation 1, 4. John points to how the Holy Spirit is full of grace and peace. And then in Revelation 4, 5, you see fire, when we get to Scripture, uh, points to judgment. Uh, When you come across fire in Scripture, you'll uh, start to understand that fire represents judgment. And so what John is saying in chapter 4 is that we'll see the fullness of his judgment. And whenever we come across, like I said, the use of fire, it points us to judgment. John is is essentially describing the Holy Spirit and his role within Revelation this way. God is ready to make war on sinful, rebellious mankind, and the Holy Spirit is, is his war torch. Now, that may be a frightening thing to some of us. Uh, we, we might be thinking about how we're living our lives right now and thinking that, well, I'm wondering if God is going to make war on me. Do you remember what Scripture says? That uh, if, if, if you're a friend of the world, you're an enemy of God. Listen, the one way to be assured that you won't have to face judgment is by accepting Christ. By accepting what Jesus did on the cross for you. Then that judgment, that judgment is to come, it's already been placed upon Christ. You see, we have to understand something. Although the first few chapters of Revelation were, let's face it, a little bit easier than the rest of the chapters. Revelation is not a book of fluff and comfort. This is what's to come. And before we get into pre-trib, mid-trib, post-trib, whatever trib you want to trip out about, uh, <laughs> we have to understand who is on the throne. Th- this is what I believe to be John's main emphasis in all of this, is the fact that, listen, yes, I know all of these things are, are about to happen. Remember, John is in the part of Revelation where he is describing the things that are to come. But he's saying, before we get to that, I want to remind you, through the Holy Spirit, that God is on the throne, Amen? So John continues here with his description of how awesome the experience of the throne room is. With his description of the floor in the throne room. Right? He, he says it was like a, a sea of glass, like crystal. Like I, I Forget epoxy for a minute, okay? Like this is an intense floor, like a sea of glass, crystal, before the throne of God. Like John, even in this, is, is, is trying to present such a, a, a descriptive detail, but our minds cannot comprehend this. Have you ever seen a, a, a sea of glass or, or, or of crystal? I haven't. The closest thing you might have seen to that is stepping out on that really tall building in Chicago, whatever it's called. Anybody know what I'm talking about? The very, very tall one? Okay. Somebody's going to Google search it during service, and you're going to come up to me. and That one, I I know which one it is. Anyways, not important. Uh, Verse 6 through 8. Now, John, in, in this, this passage, or in this, these next verses, so he introduces us to, to the one who is on the throne, right? None other than God himself. But then, 
The second group was the elders around the throne. Now he gets to this third group of people, not, not even people, angelic beings. Uh, verse 6 through 8, and around the throne, okay? John just introduced us to the 24 elders. Now he's introducing us to these four living creatures. Listen to this, will you? Full of eyes in front and behind, okay? Uh, I know there's a running joke that people say that mothers have eyes in the back of their heads. No, this is <laughs> full of eyes in front and behind. The first living creature like a lion. The second living creature like an ox. The third living creature with the face of a man. And the fourth living creature like an eagle in flight. And it's almost as if John is saying, but wait, there's more. And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within. I, I, I had to Google search this. I don't have a picture for you, but this is crazy. This is, a, this is something only God could create. I mean, even our attempts in drawing this picture pales in comparison to what is actually going to be in front of us when we get to heaven. This is awesome. And I believe that's what John is getting at. He's saying, listen, this is awesome. Words fail at trying to describe what I'm looking at right now. Now, I think most of us can agree that this is a rather intense group. I mean, if, if you saw something right in front of you that looked like one of these creatures, you'd probably pass out. Uh, I, I would be right on the floor with you. Uh, but notice where they're located. Where are they located? Around the throne. On each side of the throne. Remember this, they are consumed with worship in service unto the Lord. Ezekiel gives us a detailed description of these creatures in Ezekiel chapter 1, verse 4 through 25. Uh, you, you can actually look that verse up uh, on your own time, but the way Ezekiel describes these four living creatures is much more in-depth than John describes them. But later on in Ezekiel 10, he is very specific as to what these or who these creatures are. In Ezekiel chapter 10, verse 15. So in Ezekiel chapter 1, Ezekiel is at this canal called Chebar. Right? He's at the Chebar Canal and he gets this picture, this prophetic vision of these four living creatures. And it says, the cherubim mounted up, he says in Ezekiel 10, verse 15. He says they're cherubim. <laughs> these were the living creatures that I saw by the Chebar Canal. So, there's no guessing on who these angelic beings are. They're angels. They're cherubim. Now, you and I know the word angel, right? Uh, we, we, we know that angels play a specific role that God has designed. Uh, and, and right now, if God were to take the spiritual blinders off of us, we would see angels and demons waging war against each other. Uh, Ezekiel and John get a bigger picture of that. Uh, so what is a cherubim? A cherubim is an exalted order of angels, right? They are angelic beings, beings involved in the worship and praise of God. That is all they, they do. They're, they're there to serve God, to worship God, to praise God. And the first mention of cherubim is found in Genesis chapter 3, verse 24. Uh, it says, he drove out the man. And at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed there uh, a cherubim. And a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. 
Our first mention of this exalted angelic being is in the book of Genesis. But angels, uh, there's not much talk about angels within churches. Uh, Now, some other religions will go to a very, very different side of angelic beings and worship angels. Listen, we do not worship angels. When you and I get to heaven, we will not be worshiping the four living creatures. We will not be worshiping any angel that is in heaven. Even now, we worship the one true God. But angels just so we're aware, they have many different roles. They're worshipers, they're warriors. Obviously, we've seen that God set one up in the garden with a flaming sword to keep people out. Uh, We we see other uh, instances in the Old Testament where God uh, called a legion of angels to come down and wipe out a whole army. Uh, But they're also involved in the ministry of guidance. Uh, Remember when Peter got locked up in prison? Uh, He was there and God sent an angel to open the doors of the cell they were in. In Acts chapter 12, verse 5 through 7. They're also involved in the ministry of protection. A very common story within scripture is Daniel in the lion's den. Remember Daniel refused to bow down to King Darius at the time. And Darius had him thrown into the lion's den. Because Darius signed this decree that if anyone worshipped any other god that this person would be thrown into the lion's den. Well, Daniel was thrown into that lion's den, and Darius had a soft spot, I believe, for Daniel. Darius woke up early in the morning to check on Daniel, and he called out. He says, Daniel, son of the most high God, are are you still alive? And Daniel's response was what? Daniel 6.22, my God sent his angel and shut the lion's mouth. Talk about the ministry of protection. See, the angels we see here, though, are worshiping angels, never ceasing to give praise, honor, and glory to God. Now, some of us will go off and say, well, is there any symbolism involved with these creatures? Uh, It's hard to tell. As you study scripture, even the writers of scripture are sometimes at a loss for words of who these angels are. Uh, But here's what we do know. They never cease to worship the Lord, and declare His holiness. They're around the throne of God, proclaiming, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. That is their continual anthem. As majestic as these creatures might be, as stunning as they might be, they are not consumed with how God created them. They are consumed with God Himself. What is their anthem? Well, holy, 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 to start out with. This is a characteristic of God. It is the only characteristic that is repeated like this in Scripture. Another place that we see this is in Isaiah 6.3. And Isaiah writes, And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. Here's my question for us this morning is, what does it mean for God to be holy? We know that He is holy, but what does it mean for God to be holy? It means He is completely and totally set apart from evil. There is no trace of evil in his character. He is separate from humanity, meaning God is perfect and humanity is imperfect. It's what sets him apart from his creation, is his perfection. And since God is holy, he cannot look upon sin. 
Isaiah 59 verse 2, but your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. But as the sin of the world was taken upon Jesus, Jesus asked the question, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because the Father could not look upon Jesus who was carrying the weight of humanity's sin And just like we sang, the Father turned his face away because holiness and sin cannot coexist. You know what the Bible does say about us, which is truth for us all. No matter if you've grown up in a Christian home or if you've known the Lord from a young age, uh, Psalm 51.5, for I was born a sinner. Yes, from the moment my mother conceived me. You know, I've never heard... uh, at least I've never heard of a mother proclaim as they, they have their baby, oh, look, a sinner. I've never heard that. It's a cute little baby, and, you know, they're taking care of it. But wait until that baby grows up, okay? Then you'll discover that it's more of a sinner than you realized. And we're laughing because we know it's true, because we're all a bunch of sinners. But God is holy. He's separated, uh, he's separate from all evil, See, God's holiness doesn't mean he dismisses sin. He, he's dealt with sin upon the cross through his one and only son. Jesus bore uh, God's wrath for humanity's sin. And like I had mentioned, sin and holiness cannot exist together. And the only way for us to stand in a holy place or to stand holy is if we're in Christ. Isaiah 53, verse 4 through 6. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Because of God's great love for us, the judgment for our sin was laid upon Christ. God's wrath for humanity's sin was put on his very own son because Jesus was the perfect sacrifice for our sin. And so the only way to stand before the, before the holy God, our holy God, is if we are standing in Christ. Meaning we've confessed him as Lord and Savior. We've acknowledged that he died for our sins and paid the penalty for our sins. And that we believe that God raised him up on the third day. Listen, God is holy. So when we read the four, the, about the four living creatures never ceasing to say holy, holy, holy. It's ultimately them declaring in confidence that God is set apart. He, he's saying there's, they're saying there's no one like him. He is perfect. In all of his ways. So when we sing or say it, ultimately it is a passionate declaration that God is holy and set apart above all. They also say that God, uh, well, he's almighty, the Lord God almighty. John MacArthur says this, the term identifies God as the strongest most powerful being, utterly devoid of any weakness, whose conquering power and overpowering strength none can oppose. Amen? Job 9.19, if it is a matter of power, behold, he's the mighty one. 
Psalm 115, verse 3, but our God is in the heavens. He does whatever he pleases. Isaiah 46, 10, my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. God is strong. God is able and God is powerful. He accomplishes that which he he purposes and no one can stop him. No one. Then he goes on to say the, the four living creatures, John tells us that this is what they say who was and is and is to come we've met this phrase before if you've started uh, studying revelation with us in revelation chapter 1 verse 4 grace to you and peace from uh, him who is and who was and is to come now in case you're wondering no one created god Uh, god created everything uh, Colossians 1.17, it says he existed before all things. And, and for him, all things were created. Uh, God has no beginning and he has no end. He is the self-existent one. He has always existed. He is eternal. He, he's outside of our time. Scripture, time and time again, points to the eternality of God. And it's a major doctrine within the believer's life, which ultimately points to him being supreme and sovereign overall if we could translate this if you will the four living creatures this this is what they're saying they're saying god you are perfect you are powerful and you are eternal that is what they continually say they 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 say it in such a way that they they know who god is listen the question i have this morning for us is can, can we say that with total and complete confidence? Do, do we know that God is perfect? Do we know that God is powerful? Do we know that God is eternal? Do you know? Do I know? So here's the application. How do we apply what we know about God to our lives? Because okay? sometimes when we get to Revelation, we think that Revelation doesn't really have any application for our lives. Yes, it does understanding who God is and applying who God is to our lives, understanding his holiness. Let's start there. What does it mean for the believer that he's holy? It means that we serve a God who has no evil in him. It means that he is the epitome of purity. He's perfect. There is no, there, there, there is no evil in him. It means the reason for our worship of him is not for us, but for him. Not because he needs his ego stroked. It's not like God is sitting on the throne and, and he's not like, man, I'm really feeling down today. Maybe if they just sang a couple songs to me, I'd feel better about myself. If we served a God like that, we wouldn't want any business with that God. Our God doesn't need his ego stroked. He, he demands worship. He expects worship because he is worthy, because he is perfect, not because he needs his ego stroked. Now, the, the living creatures, their worship was directed to who? Not a trick question. God, right? The Lord Almighty, the one who is seated on the throne. Now, when we come to worship, right? Now, uh, what we think sometimes is that worship is just limited to what happens up here. We have to get past that. Uh, worship is designed to get our eyes off of ourselves, first and foremost, uh, one, another aspect of worship uh, is serving. It's helping with outreach. It's, it, another form of worship is actually what you're doing right now, listening to the word of God being preached. 
Do we benefit from it? Absolutely. But it is, is it all about us? No. See, when you come into worship, when I come into worship, our aim should be to worship Him and Him alone. Because He is holy, because He is set apart, because He is the, the Lord God Almighty, because He is eternal, not because of how good the worship band may be on a particular Sunday or how comfortable the temperature might be in a room, okay? Listen, worship should be geared towards worshiping God and God alone. If our aim is to bring glory to ourselves during worship, just to get a pat pat on the back because we may have lifted our hands during a song, listen, then our motives are wrong and we need to repent. The bottom line is this. Worship isn't about you. The application is this. When we're gathered together, may we seek the Lord, worship the Lord, and magnify his holy name. Worship is not about you and I. How about his almightiness? One of my life verses, if you will, is Jeremiah thirty-two twenty-seven. Behold, I am the Lord, the God of all flesh. Is anything too hard for me? Kind of a rhetorical question. Jeremiah was going through this ministry season where he was seeing nobody come to the Lord. You talk about ministry. He he was down on his luck, so to speak. Remember the word behold? Uh, I don't know if you you tried it this week with your wives. Behold, wives. The honeydew list is done. Um, (laughs) But behold is essentially to get us to change our direction. Look over there. Behold, over there. Uh, God to Jeremiah is saying, Jeremiah, behold, son, you have your eyes on the wrong thing. Many of us this morning might need to be told that same, very same thing. Behold, look to me. Jeremiah was, was depressed. He, 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 was, he was known as the, the weeping prophet. Okay, because he had no converts. He, he was told by God to preach a message and the message was not received. And God said, listen, I am the God of all flesh. And then he asked the question, is anything too hard for me? He's ultimately saying, Jeremiah, listen, I am strong. I am mighty. And you don't have anything to worry about. And that might be a word for us this morning, especially for some of us going into the holiday season Uh, it's kind of an anxious time for some of us. It's kind of a depressing time for some of us. We're trying to get together with family, but certain families won't meet and this and that and the other. And it's just, man, I don't know what to do. Listen, is anything too hard for the Lord? No, here's the issue is we limit God during our challenges because we think that God functions like you and I do. How pathetic would that be? You know how you function, and I know how I function. I don't want the God that I serve to function like me. I make mistakes all the time. See, God is nothing like us. He is strong. He is mighty. He is powerful. And when we surrender to him, being uh, the almighty God that he is, our perspective of what we go through in this life changes from here to the then, to behold. Get your eyes off of your problems. And remember this question, is anything too hard for the Lord? No. God is almighty. Will life be difficult? Pretty sure we can all attest to this very, very same thing. Yes, life will be difficult. 
But will God still be in control? Absolutely. Will he give you strength as you wait upon him during the challenges that you may be facing? 100%. Isaiah 40, verse 31. But those who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. For those who wait on the Lord. Bottom line is this. The Lord is mighty. He is strong and nothing is too hard for him. Amen? The application is this, submit to him, surrender to him, because without him, life is miserable and you are hopeless. But with him, you have help, you have hope, and you have him. Now, the last one is his, his eternality. What does that mean for us? How do we apply that? Revelation 1.8, you remember what Jesus says, I am the alpha and the what? The Lord is saying, I'm the beginning and the end. And if he's the beginning and the end, then everything else in between, guess what? Guess whose control is it is in? It's in his control. And since that is the case, he is not oblivious to what is going on in your life. Like I've mentioned time and time again, when you go through a trial, when you go through a struggle, God's not like, didn't see that one coming. He knows. He knows the challenges you'll face. He sees the pain that you'll encounter. He sees the anxiety that you're ridden with that night. He, he sees it all. He knows it all. He hears it all. He's not surprised. He's not caught off guard. He's God. He's, he's eternal. He's almighty. He knows all. Bottom line is this. Because God is eternal, simply put, the Lord is in control. Even when it doesn't seem like it. Even when it doesn't feel like it, God, because of who he is, is still very much in control. Now, the application is Isaiah 40, verse 10 through 31. If you have a Bible, go ahead and turn there. We're going to close out with this, this verse, these verses. Actually, let's all stand as we read this together. He says, starting in verse 10, Behold, the Lord God comes with might, and his arm rules for him. Behold, his reward is with him, and his recompense before him. He will tend his flock like a shepherd, he will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are with young. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand and, and marked off the heavens with the span, enclosed the dust of the earth in a measure and weighed the mountains in scales and the hills in a balance? Who has measured the spirit of the Lord or what man shows him his counsel? Whom did he consult and, and who made him understand? Who taught him the path of justice and taught him knowledge and showed him the way of understanding? Behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket and are accounted as the dust on the scales. Behold, he takes up the coastlands like fine dust. Lebanon would not suffice for fuel, nor are its beasts enough for a burnt offering. All the nations are as nothing before him. They are accounted, him, accounted by him as less than nothing and emptiness. To whom then will you liken God? Or what likeness compare with him? 
an idol, a craftsman casts it, and a goldsmith overlays it with gold and casts for it silver chains. He who is too impoverished for an offering chooses wood that will not rot. He seeks out a skillful craftsman to set up an idol that will not move. Do you not know? Do you not hear? Has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth that it is he who sits above the circle of the earth and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them like a tent to dwell in, who brings princes to nothing and makes the rulers of the earth as emptiness? Scarcely are they planted, scarcely sown. Scarcely has their stem taken root in the earth when he blows on them. And they wither, and the tempest carries them off like stubble. To whom will you compare me, that I should be like him, says the Holy One? Lift up your eyes on high and see who created these. Who brings out their host by number, calling them all by name, by the greatness of his might, and because he is strong in power, not one is missing. Why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord, and my right hand is disregarded by my God? Have you not known? Have you not heard that the Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth? He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the faint, and to him who has no might, he increases strength. Even youths shall faint and be weary, and young men shall fall exhausted, but they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the truth about who you are. Thank you that you are holy, that you are almighty, that you're strong, that you're powerful, that you're separated from evil, that you're perfect in all your ways, that you are eternal, that you live forever and ever like these elders proclaim and like these four living creatures proclaim. God, I pray that you would just help us to know you more. The end goal in life is to know you and to be known by you. And if that's the only thing that is ever said about us, then Lord, that's all that needs to be said about us. For to know you is life and life abundantly. Lord, I pray for those in this room this morning, God, that are weary, that are exhausted, that are weary, that are heavy laden by their sin, Lord. Whatever season of life they're going through right now, Lord, may they turn and look and behold the throne. Lord, I pray for strength. Pray that you would just infuse that into them, your strength as they wait upon you. Lord, thank you for being who you are and how we live in such a world of constant change, but you remain the same yesterday, today, and forever. And so, Lord, thank you For speaking to us through your word, help us to apply these things to our lives. We give you all the honor and all the glory. And it's in Jesus' mighty name we pray. Amen.